Welcome to the News and Views podcast by the Fintech Times. Established in 2016, the Fintech Times is a global multimedia news outlet centered around the world's first leading fintech newspaper. We report on the latest and brightest ideas from the fintech world. Follow the conversation using hashtag TFC News and Views and follow us at the Fintech Times. Hi, I'm Polly Jean Harrison, features editor at the Fintech Times. Hi, I'm Francis Bignall and I'm a journalist at the Fintech Times. Hi, I'm Tyler Smith and I'm a journalist at the Fintech Times. Hello, 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 and welcome back once again to the Fitted Times News and Views podcast. Tyler, Francis, how have you been? I feel like it's been a partially quieter week now that we're all back and out from events and things like that. But at the same time, is it ever a quiet week? Yeah, Tyler, how, how have you been doing? Oh my goodness, has it been another week already? I I can't quite believe it. I uh, It's been a very, very busy week this week and lots of really interesting news stories. What about your week, Polly? Yeah, like I say, it feels a bit quieter, but I don't know if that's just quieter because, you know, it's it's not so much going on as normal. But uh, no, it's been but it's been good. We've had a lot of good stuff. And obviously, digital currencies, um, the theme this month has been going really well. Francis, why don't you tell us a little about that? Absolutely. It's good to talk to you guys again. Yeah, digital currencies has been shifting along quite nicely. We've been discussing blockchain initiatives, CBDCs and sort of which countries are leading the way. Now we're looking towards smart contracts and then we're going to be finishing it out looking at sort of quirky currencies and just sort of a nice little way of a, almost like a roundup, you know, leading up to our December, our December folks, which tends to look at, you know, the year in review and predictions. I think it'll be a, a nice little segue into it. The quirky currencies stuff is always my favorite when we do it in the year. It's just because it's always just really random. Shout out to the FART NFT currency. from last year. Yeah. Oh God, the FART. Oh, I missed the FART NFT. Um, but anyway, so what are we going to be talking about on the podcast this week? Uh, Tyler, what are you going to be talking about? We're going to be taking a look at the industry's preparedness for the arrival of the Financial Conduct Authority's consumer duty, which will be coming into force on July, end of July next year. So we're going to be taking a little bit of a look at that. What about you guys? Oof. Uh, in a very uh, different topic, I'm going to be looking at the NFT vending machine. Um, and then Francis, what are you going to be doing? I'm going to be taking a third, completely different angle, and we're going to be looking at ethical buy now, pay later. Fantastic. Well, Tyler, why don't you go first? Because you've got a nice big meaty one. So let's get you out the way. Well, thank you very much, Polly. Yes. Well, this is a really, really fantastic article. We had this uh, white paper come through from Making Science, and what it looked at was the UK's preparedness for the Financial Conduct Authority's consumer duty, as I just mentioned in the title. For those of you that aren't quite sure what the consumer duty is, it's something that we've been speaking about a lot at the FinTech Times recently. And essentially what it does is it means that financial institutions have to be very, very transparent with the services and products that they're offering. And it also means that they have to offer personalized products that are suitable for the product for the consumers they're targeting. Now, what was interesting about this is that the the white paper from Making Science put forward that uh, companies were underutilizing the technologies that were available to them, mainly being artificial intelligence and machine learning technology, to really make the most out of the the insights and the data that they were producing, and they would they would use this technology to guide their services to be more compliant with the FCA's 
uh, upcoming regulation. As I said, this is uh, due to come into force in about eight months from now, just over eight months uh, at the end of July next year. So there is a little bit of wiggle room, but I think this is sort of just foreshadowing that people might not be prepared. But what it does, it puts a, a lot of emphasis on the use of machine learning and how that can be applied to to make these products more targeted uh, and more appropriate for the audiences that they're being shown to. I personally think that we've seen a lot of machine learning before in the past. We've, we've seen a lot of this sort of technology being used in the past. But I think that there are frictions to its use, namely the cost and understanding how to get the best performance out of it. I, I was just wondering, you know, as we're going up into into uh, next year with the, with the regulation coming into force, how do you guys uh, see these financial regula- uh, financial institutions utilizing their data to to be more compliant? And do you think that there's anything that they could do to ensure that they were offering the right, more personalized products as outlined by the regulation? I'll jump in here. I think. To be honest, Tyler, I was kind of surprised at the at the findings because 49% of product recommendations not leveraging advanced machine learning technology and 55% neglecting the technology when optimizing ad campaigns. I found that quite surprising, to be honest, just because it seems like in the modern day, you really see every company, well, any successful company really like optimizing any any chance they get to use the latest technology. And we've spoken about it before on the podcast, and I know we've done articles on it as well, discussing how imperative it really is for organizations to, I suppose, not only obtain, but almost exploit the latest technology because you've really got to make a make the most of it in order to, one, keep consumers, because in a, in a consumer-driven world, if they're not getting something instantly, they're moving somewhere else. And I think that is a, something that we keep bringing up, but it is just so important. And it almost makes me think that it's, I don't want to say it's laziness because of course there's going to be demands of resources and where they're allocated. And especially during cost of living, I suppose that understandably has a knock on effect on businesses as well. I suppose, you know, priorities might not be in favor of, you know, investing in technology right now because it's more of a case of survival. But I, I, I don't know. I can't help but feel that it is still a surprising stat to see that, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning are still being underused. I would have thought that it would almost go without saying that most companies would now be using it. So yeah, I've I've just found it very interesting. And like I said, sort of surprising that those are really the the stats that were found. Yes, you're absolutely right, Francis. I mean, let's be absolutely clear. The machine learning and artificial intelligence is by no means a secret in the industry. So I share in your surprise that they're being underutilized and underadopted. And I think that you've done really well to outline and emphasize the fact that, you know, if if businesses don't start using this technology, not only are they going to be non-compliant with the FCA, which is already deep water to be in, but as you said, they're going to start losing customers. And it's it's going to, I really think it's going to drive a huge amount of competition. And I think it's going to drive a huge amount of innovation. But we do need to make sure that we're standing on the foundation beforehand to allow that to happen. Polly, what do you think? Oh, Tyler, I was just going to jump in there. But do you think it's laziness? Sorry. That's all right. That's all right. But I'm just thinking, do you think it's laziness from a company? And I guess, Polly, this goes to you as well. Just sort of from hearing about that, is it laziness or is it, you know, just not a prioritization of resources? 
Well, I think that what the the data made clear was it was a huge preference for internal systems, right? And I think that there's almost like this agenda within the industry at the moment that people are viewing it as well if it isn't broken don't fix it especially as you said you know it's in such a time of survival i i don't think it's laziness but i i don't i think that it's not necessarily too high up on people's priority lists given also that the regulation implementation implementation date is eight months away um so perhaps we'll see different figures uh later next year polly what's your view yeah, I think so. J- jumping off of Francis's question about laziness, I think that's a really interesting question to ask, first of all. And and I kind of agree with you, Tyler, on your response to that in terms of I just don't think it's high up on people's list, especially when you th- like think about very traditional financial institutions, you know, the big banks or any any old um, older financial institution. They don't really like change. I think what we've seen a lot from. Uh, the past and now obviously a lot of them are having to change to keep up with neobanks and other fintech challenges uh, but traditionally like Tyler said if it's not broken don't fix it so I think that is the key here but then also I think it's not laziness per se I don't think that's necessarily the correct word but I do think there is an element of oh it's fine we'll deal with that later like we'll we'll get to that at some point and I think you know especially when you think about data trying to figure out how to manage your data is it's probably a a costly process b a time-consuming process once you've got those processes in place then you know it's a very easy way of running things so i think obviously utilizing the data is going to be the way to go it's whether these uh companies get in there francis no i just want to jump on that point there and sort of ask is it a case of you know i suppose investing now for the future you know, because I feel like, like you said, there's this idea of, you know, well, it's not a priority. We don't really need to deal with it right now. And I definitely agree. I think that is very much the case with traditional um, financial institutions, namely banks, of course, the incumbents. But I just, I'm just thinking like, you know, is it not a case of like jumping ahead, jumping ahead of the competition, investing in this technology now to not only have more customer loyalty long term, but I don't know, I can't help but feel that there is something there that that organizations are missing out on which is why i say is it potentially laziness no i think i think you're absolutely right francis and and to be honest with you i wonder if that is why we are seeing in traditional finance institutions you know that difficulty to keep up with neobanks and other fintech challenges because they're not thinking ahead they think of the now where i feel as within fintech when we think about fintech companies and different um institutions within the fintech world fintech is all about looking forward right like it's always about what's coming next how can we deal for what's coming next whereas in the traditional finance industry i think it's very much just now is now let's do now and worry about it later which is why they're kind of lagging behind sometimes and have such a bigger delay so i think you're absolutely spot on the money there yes it's it's really really interesting to see how the industry is reacting on this front and especially in regards to the early bird catching the worm i mean I think those who act now, as, as you guys have both really well outlined in your comments so far, that those who act now will really see the benefit in the long term. I would really like to return to these figures back in July, but we can see closer to the day what uh, what the adoption rate is looking like. But uh, for now, I think uh, we, we'll, we best move on to your story, Polly. What have you got in store for us? Yeah, thanks, Tyler. So my story is a bit of a, a bit of a fun one. Uh, we're looking at the NFT vending machine landing in Europe, uh, raising nearly four thousand pounds for charity. So I think you know vending machines pretty trendy, aren't they? 
Uh, we've got pizza vending machines. We've got Lego vending machines. In Shrewsbury Town Centre, where I live, there is a false eyelash vending machine, which is quite bougie for us. It was quite uh, interesting when it put, got put up. Uh, but now there are NFT vending machines. So my NFT, a low-cost multi-chain NFT marketplace, exhibited Europe's first physical NFT vending machine. Um, and its first outing saw 390 NFTs sold over two days, which equates to one NFT sold every two minutes. Um, and they raised £3,900 for charity, uh, both Giveth and Roald Dahl's marvellous children's charity, uh, which I thought was a very nice touch. You know, everyone always loves charity, right? Um, but I just thought this was a really interesting concept because obviously the whole point of an NFT is that it is non-fungible, like an NF- non-fungible token, you know? And the idea, and they're all digital, right? And yet here we are translating them into like a physical thing where they're manifesting themselves into a physical object in a vending machine. And I just thought that was a really interesting take on the whole NFT thing. Um, But basically how they bought an NFT was you bought an envelope, so you paid £10 and and the vending machine uh, would spit out a envelope and inside the envelope was a card with a QR code on, and then once you'd set up your QR code with an NFT wallet, you got an NFT that could be worth up to a thousand pounds. It was also a mystery NFT, which you know adds a layer of intrigue to the whole thing. And my NFT's first NFT collection included like an assortment of iconic NFTs, as they've said, including brands like Doctor Who, Will to Part, Thunderbirds, uh, Nightwatch, and things like that. So there was you know a lot of a lot of cool stuff happening, um, and I just thought this was super cool, super interesting, and also just a bit you know, oh, that's strange, Uh, an NFT vending machine. Okay, sure. Uh, But the reason why they've done it essentially is that they want to eliminate barriers to entry into the NFT space. You know, my NFT wants to provide an easy way for anyone who wants to start buying and trading digital assets to be able to do so. Um, And the vending machine is supposed to symbolize the simplicity of the my NFT platform, creating a fun and engaging process for inquiring NFTs. And obviously they did a pretty good job uh, considering how many they sold on the day and how many uh, people after the fact are like really interested in the vending machine um, and they're trying to find another place to put it like a permanent place as well as possibly sending out to other events as well um, but I'd love to get your guys thoughts on this a my first question would you use an NFT vending machine uh, and b what do you think about it is it a good idea or does it kind of defeat the point of an NFT itself uh, Francis I've got a few thoughts on this would I ever use an NFT vending machine nft vending machine myself maybe i don't really have a yes or no answer there it sort of really depends on i guess my understanding of nfts and i suppose i understand what an nft is because we work in the space and it's kind of imperative that we do understand nfts but i think for the average joe who sort of just turned up to i don't know buy a coke from a vending machine or something and then there's the nfts right next to it and it's like here's a tenner Go buy an NFT. Are they going to do it? I don't know because I feel like you need to understand the technology behind it and you need to understand because at the end of the day, it's like a crypto investment, right? The The prices are go up and down. They're very volatile. And I can't help but feel there's this gambling aspect to it, especially in this case where it's like it could be up to work up. Sorry, it could be worth up to a thousand pounds. And I know I'm sort of being a Debbie Downer in this podcast so far, sort of taking out the negatives of everything, you know, being lazy, being like just trying to gamble. But I can't help but feel like it almost, it probably isn't a very good comparison, but it almost feels like FIFA points to me in the sense that, you know, you, you put money in 
into to FIFA and you buy a pack and you don't understand really what you're going to get back. And uh, it's just gambling in general. And I just think that it's really playing on this idea of like the big gain. It's almost like a scratch card, you know, you pay a tiny little thing with the possibility of earning big bucks. But I feel like if you don't even understand NFTs very well, one, you're not really going to understand if it's worth a big amount purely based on the name of it. And I just think it needs to be something that you genuinely believe in and support. You know, I think having spoken to the golf junkies creator, the NFT creator last year, I remember him explaining to me what the purpose of that NFT was. It was like it almost like a key card to get into an exclusive group. And I think when NFTs have this sort of purpose, they're really good. But if you're just buying it for the sake of making it, it's just easy money. And it's just one of those things that always has a red flag associated with it, I think. Yeah, and I I can see your point entirely. Um, I will say that the the vending machine was at an NFT related conference. So I guess the people there would kind of know what an NFT is. But if they are trying to find somewhere they can put this just to have it permanently like on on the street or in a building or whatever then then yeah i think you're but isn't that what they're trying to do they're trying to yeah that's why i mean yeah if they're trying to break yeah but then i guess that's that's a really interesting idea and i suppose the on the flip side of that because it's only 10 i say only 10 pound 10 pound is a relatively small amount of money but i know for some people 10 pound probably is a significant amount of money um but because it is such a small amount, I guess that's kind of trying to what they get at. Like, you know, it's it's only it's only a small amount. That's how you get into NFTs. But then I do agree. Is it a gambling aspect with it? Cool. It could be worth a thousand pounds. Do they say that? Do they tell you that? It's interesting. Tyler, what do you think? Well, I really, really like these sort of really quirky examples of when they've mixed a form of technology with a really accessible way uh, to to reach it. I think that these NFTs, as you said, you know, they're very small price. They're not like, uh, you know, the one with the bored apes, for example. Um, I think that something like this might do really well in in like a public space outside of an immediately NFT event, right? I think that it would do really well to sort of introduce people to what NFTs are and what they could look like however i must agree with francis that a yes it is a gamble and i'm i'm sort of conscious that if you were to buy an nft from this vending machine that didn't really have a purpose or or was some some sort of tool in some way as we've seen has been very popular with with nfts and i think it might sort of um misdefine what nfts are actually capable of i mean if this was your first exposure to an nft and it wasn't doing anything then i don't know if that would set a very good pre- uh, precedent for the the future abilities of the technology yeah that's an interesting point too and i guess it all comes down to where nfts are going you know i think when they first boomed in popularity everyone seemed to say oh they'll be gone by christmas and then christmas came and went and they were still around and then people said, oh, they'll be gone by the summer. And then the summer came and went and they're still around. So it is. it does seem an interesting place to to be in right now and certainly an interesting place to watch from the outset, especially as, you know, myself being someone who has very little interest in NFTs at all. Um, so, yeah, it's it's all it's all very interesting. Um, but anyway, moving on, Francis, why don't you give us uh, the last article of the of the podcast? Thank you very much, Polly. I'd like to think that I'm not going to be so down <laughs> in this article. Because I think it's quite a cool cool idea, really. And it's this idea of ethical buy now, pay later. And it came from a guest post from DeVito, uh, Todd Latham specifically. 
And it really went into this idea of, you know, buy now, pay later is not just this little alternative payment form, shall we say, anymore. If you look a few years ago when not everyone knew what Klarna was and if you wanted to pay for something over time, you had to use your credit card and it was this complicated process. There wasn't this pay in three that you now see with pretty much everywhere you go. There tends to be an option for for a buy now, pay later vendor of some sort. And I think what Latham was really trying to convey in this article is that it's almost gotten too easy to use buy now, pay later in the sense that people don't really understand the risks associated with it and that merchants are sort of just in trying to compete as we sort of mentioned before and it's as we should continue to mention consumers are driving business nowadays it's not a case of you know a business can decide and be like well if you don't want to work with us that's on you it's a thing of that businesses need to keep consumers involved or the consumer will just go somewhere else i think as a result of that you know buy now pay later has just the the entry point has dropped and dropped and dropped so for merchants it's great but for consumers it's less so because they can fall into debt and one of the big points that latham raises is that communication is needed to ensure that they really know the risks and don't find themselves looking for loans to essentially pay back a loan if you know what i mean they're like they need to be able to to be confident that they're going to have the funds to pay for the for whatever they're buying and because the price of entry is so low in it's very easy for consumers to think, oh, well, it's only a few a few quid or, you know, it's only going to be like 30 odd quid a month. It's it's this small negative idea that oh, it won't make a difference when in actual fact, you know, things add up, cost of living crisis is kind of a big deal. So I think what really was highlighted is that buy now, pay later is not going to go away. And it really is a wonderful tool for both consumers and merchants to get everyone involved and find a way for people to get what they want. But you merchants need to think about consumers' ability to pay back. And I think that is something that is that is crucial, really. And I just wanted to sort of share it with you guys and sort of get your thoughts on ethical buy now, pay later. Is it being abused, do you think, by merchants or buy now, pay later vendors who are getting in contact saying, you know, oh, you should try implementing our alternative payment method or are, consu- are consumers at fault should they already be aware of the risks that are associated with it uh tyler what are your thoughts i am quite positive i, I stand by my opinion that when you use buy now pay later a bit like buying an nft it's it's a risk that you take when using the service i i think that the industry has been so clear to to define what the what the negative externalities of buy now pay later are so i think that when you use it and if you use it and you fall into debt i think that's on the consumer because we've had so many regulations especially here in the uk where uh, buy now pay later providers really have to be clear and really have to do the right sort of credit checks in order to approve these loans to people right so i i really feel that yes okay there are, there are more that providers could do. There are more that regulators could do. But in the end, I think the ball is firmly in the consumer's court when it comes to identifying the risks and also being responsible for the risks that you amass in its use. I I think, you know, we've seen a lot in terms of buy now, pay later being highly adopted uh, in the face of the cost of living crisis, which makes complete sense. But as you've emphasized in what you've said so far, Francis, is that this really has opened the door for a lot of people to fall into bad debt or to fall into new risks, for example. 
and yeah i i really think i I really do think that the onus is on the consumer to be honest i think for an experienced user i would agree i think for someone who's used it at least once you've got to have an idea of of the risks associated but i think maybe for a first-time user who sees this ability that oh this thing that i was gonna buy is 1.5 thousand or 1.5k i should say like I think for that sort of user, they need to have a little explanation just to explain this is how it's going to work. These are the risks that are associated with it. It's not going to be a free sort of because I feel like a lot of people see buy now, pay later and they see interest free and they think, perfect, if I can't pay this back, it's not a problem. But of course it is. And I think that is really where the the education needs to be is it needs to be with that first time use. And then, like you said, then I would agree. And I think then it's on the user. And if the user can't pay it back, well, they know they knew the risk going into it. So they're the ones responsible. Polly, what do you think? Yeah, I have a few points that I kind of want to say. Um, I, I do agree that it is uh, on the onus of the consumer to make sure that they understand the risks involved. You know, like with any financial product, you, there's always risks and, and you kind of whether right or wrong, the onus is on you as a consumer to to find out those risks and act appropriately. But then I do think on the other side of it, there is very much a case of certain, perhaps certain merchants or certain providers, things like that, that do push it. Uh, and I feel like on the run up to Christmas now, obviously everyone's got tied to belts this year, tied to wallets or whatever you want to call it because um, of the cost of living crisis. And now in the run-up to Christmas, traditionally one of the, the biggest spending uh, seasons of the year, I am getting a lot of ads for different buy now, pay laters, but also like different credit options, you know, like opening a store credit card with um, different websites and things like that. And I am getting that pushed a lot. And I think it's very easy then to fall into the trap because if it's right in front of you and people are telling you, oh, do this, do this, you can, you can buy this thing and you don't have to pay for it for like three months. And you think, oh, okay, brilliant. So I can I can get a Christmas present for my friend or whatever. And I think, I guess it comes down to the motive behind the pushing it. Like, are they these sort of big ads and these emails and the things? And, you know, when you're on the website, it flashes up. Oh, you can buy this with Klarna. You can buy this with Clearpay. You can buy this with whatever other thing is out there. And I guess it's the motive behind it. Is the motive behind it like genuinely offering a good service and a good product for a consumer to help them manage their money and help them afford things that they may not have been able to afford if they have to pay all up front? Or is it sort of the motive behind it being let's get the merchant to make as much money as possible? You know, let's let's really pile into capitalism and, and make as much money as we possible and squeeze as much money out of these people as we can by offering them credit services and buy no later services that they can't necessarily afford and i think that's kind of what comes down it to me and maybe that's a little bit deep for um such a podcast as this one but i think yeah it's it's all about the motive i think and if the motive is a genuine one of yeah let's help people out with their finances brilliant perfect love it but you know at the end of the day i think there is a duty of care for certain merchants or providers or other financial institutions whatever there is a duty of care there to consumers to make sure that they understand what it is that they're getting into. And I think obviously you can't force everyone to understand. You can put up your your terms of and conditions, but who reads terms and conditions, right? You can put up all sorts of different information on your website. You can have things flash up before you buy, but you can't guarantee that consumer is going to read them and you can't guarantee that consumer is going to stand understand them. They're just going to take the box anyway because they want to buy their trainers. So I think 
it's a really weird place to be in, I think. And it's a, you've really got to strike that balance somehow. And I wish I knew how to strike that balance. I wish I had that solution. Um, but yeah, it's that's kind of my my thoughts on the whole thing. Yeah, I think you've really hit on something there and this idea of, you know, what's the motive? And I think for the most part, it's in my opinion, at least, it's probably both, if not leaning more towards the merchant's gain. But I don't know. I think that it is a it is a difficult one and it, it is a case of let's let's try and see how we can help our consumers whilst we can also make some money. And I think that is where that is, I suppose, what the article is looking to highlight, this fine line that both merchants, consumers and BNPL providers need to really walk to ensure that everyone's a winner. And I think the idea of ethical buy now, pay later is great, but I, I think you've really sort of summed it up well that you can only provide so much before the onus turns back on onto the consumer. And then it's like Tyler said, then it's on the, it's on the consumer to really to be responsible. So I think, yeah, there's some good takeaways here. Awesome. Well, we are coming to the end of our podcast, but very, very quickly, we will do what I learned this week. So each week, so much news and info crosses our desks about the fintech world that we are learning something new all the time. And we thought it'd be fun to share that with our listeners. So Tyler, what did you learn this week? Thanks, Polly. Well, this this week, I looked at President Tokayev, the president of Kazakhstan. He's making a lot of constitutional reforms at the moment, and investors from the Europe and particularly the US are seeing these reforms in a positive light for foreign direct investments. So that's really, really good news for Kazakhstan. Lovely stuff. And Francis, what did you learn this week? I learned this week that the UK mobile app growth sustains momentum post-pandemic. And I should state as well that this is financial mobile apps, because there was an idea that following the pandemic as sort of life returned to normal, people would move away from the digital. However, research from Apps Fiverr has found that non-organic installs grew by 57%, suggesting that the market activity is increasingly effective at driving app adoption, while over-app installs rose 34%, demonstrating that mobile app usage is not only driven by the global pandemic, but serve an ongoing function. Very good. Very cool. Um, and then what I learned this week is that Go Henry, the um, app, financial app for children, is celebrating its 10-year anniversary very, very soon, which I thought was quite exciting. And also quite, um, you, you don't expect them to be ha- having gone on for that long. 10 years is a very long time when you think the popularity has boomed sort of in the past however many years or so. But I thought that was quite exciting. Uh, but anyway... Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for joining me once again. I feel like we've had some good fintech chat today, as we always do. Uh, So catch you on the next one, guys. Have a great week. Thanks for everything, guys. See you next week. See you guys later. Thanks for listening to the News and Views podcast by the Fintech Times. Don't miss next week's episode and continue the conversations using hashtag TFT News and Views and follow us at the Fintech Times.